Hi there, Litterbugs, and welcome to the Classic English Literature Podcast, the show that gives rhyme its reason. We can count among our listeners sultans, maharajas, kings, queens, the crowned heads of Europe, and prime ministers. No. Today's foray into the fertile imagination of William Shakespeare concerns those crazy kids, Romeo and Juliet, another play that everybody knows. But before we get swept up in the riptide of Veronese romance and violence, I would like you to know that my email is classicenglishliterature at gmail.com. That's classicenglishliterature, all one word, gmail.com. Drop a line to suggest some new show topics or new approaches or to offer suggestions or just say hello. It gets lonely out here on the interweb cloud. You can also find the show on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and X, nay Twitter. Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet is a play that occupies a major piece of real estate in the popular imagination. The lead characters have become a byword for young love, for consuming passion. And everyone in the English-speaking world can probably quote, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? Even if there is still a good deal of confusion as to what the line means. The play is a favorite among middle and early high school English teachers who assume, very, very wrongly, in my opinion, that the tale of teenagers in love will be accessible and enjoyable to hormonally charged adolescents. And it's in that arena, the pubescent language arts classroom, that most people get their somewhat distorted ideas about Shakespeare's work. Let's flesh out the plot for those of you who may have left school more than a few months ago. Romeo and Juliet begins with a chorus introducing two leading families of Verona, the Capulets and the Montagues. These families are embroiled in a feud that has erupted into violence on three separate occasions, but the reasons for this antagonism remain vague. A fourth outbreak of violence occurs in the play's first scene when the Prince of Verona intercedes and threatens to banish the participants. Later, Don Capulet plans a feast, hoping to affiance his daughter Juliet to the Count Paris. Word of the party spreads. Capulets give the best bashes. And Montague's son Romeo, with his friends Benvolio and Mercutio, decide to go in disguise. Romeo hoping that Rosaline, whom he loves, really, he totally, totally does, no question. He hopes that she will attend. But instead, he meets Juliet and falls instantly in love with her. Rosaline who? Juliet's cousin Tybalt recognizes the Montague intruders, hustles them out, breaking off the new lover's introductions. So Romeo skulks about the Capulet orchard, as you would, hoping to see Juliet in her window, which is not even a little bit creepy, 
They decide to marry the next day, which is not even a little bit rash, with the help of Juliet's nurse, when Juliet goes for confession to Friar Lawrence. Comes off without a hitch. Beautiful. A hot-headed Tybalt challenges Romeo, who refuses to fight. He's a lover now, you see. He's not a fighter. Now, Mercutio, Romeo's friend, thinks Romeo's a wuss and fights with Tybalt himself. Romeo tries to stop the fight, but Mercutio is slain. Enraged, Romeo chases Tybalt down and kills him. Still a bit of the fighter in him after all. And of course, the Prince of Verona's got to banish the murderer. Juliet waits anxiously for Romeo. Then she learns of the fight, Tybalt's death, and Romeo's banishment. Friar Lawrence is looking after the exile, trying to figure out a way to have Romeo spend the night with Juliet before he leaves for Mantua. Now, while all of this is afoot, the Capulets mourn Tybalt, and then Lord Capulet declares that Juliet will wed Paris tomorrow. Juliet would rather not, thank you very much. Juliet's parents are quite miffed at her obstinacy. See, here's the genius part of the plan. Friar Lawrence provides a potion that simulates death. And so the wedding party thinks when they come to collect her. The friar sends word to Romeo of Juliet's plan and tells him to come rescue his wife. But alas, the vital message does not reach Romeo because an outbreak of plague has cut off travel. The desolate husband hears that his bride is dead, purchases poison from a Mantuan apothecary, returns to Verona, arrives at the tomb, kills Paris, drinks his poison, and dies. Juliet awakes from her stupor, and Friar Lawrence fills her in on the latest events. She refuses to leave the tomb and stabs herself to death. The Capulets and the Montagues take the obvious lesson, agree to a peace, and raise a monument to their dead children. In his history plays, and in some of the tragedies to come, Shakespeare consulted a number of sources, particularly Plutarch's Lives and Hollingshed's Chronicles. For the comedies, he looked to Italian playwrights for inspiration or to Ovid's Metamorphoses, A Midsummer Night's Dream, actually, is one of the few plays for which we cannot identify a source, and so it may be one of the Bard's original plots, though Ovid does have an obvious influence. Anyway, for Romeo and Juliet, we have a really prominent source, a 1562 poem by one Arthur Brooke entitled The Tragical History of Romeus and Juliet. It's the first telling of the Romeo and Juliet legend in English, and Brooke himself stirred together a number of continental tellings going back to the 1530s. Original Italian versions, like the one by Luigi de Porta, present pretty much the tale as we have it on the stage. Romeo and Gioletta are members of the feuding families of Montecchi and Capoletti, who secretly fall in love and marry. These sources include the accommodating nurse, Romeo's exile, the friar's sleeping draft, the failed message, and the suicides in the tomb. A 1559 French version by Boisteau changes the suicide timing a bit 
So Romeo has died before Juliet recovers, and it's the French versions that Brooke draws from, and which he heavily moralizes, turning it into a cautionary tale, and Shakespeare imbibes a lot from him in turn. But, of course, our William just can't leave well enough alone. He needs to put his own flavor on it, and its moral bluntness is the first to go. Ditch the crude preachiness against the perils of young passion. As I said at the beginning of the episode, Romeo and Juliet is a play nearly everyone knows something about. In addition to the boatload of famous lines, we're familiar with the themes of, you know, the obsessive power of love and the the violence that it can engender. We know that the play as a tragedy is going to dwell on ideas of fate and free will and character. And one can see the play as a meditation on social management, uh, on family, on state. Where does authority lie? What is the, what's the proper balance between justice and the individual and society? The proper balance between the sexes. I think All of this is, in one way or another, rather commonplace for most of us. But reading it through this time, one of the things I noticed Shakespeare doing is interrogating the ways by which the conventions of literature, uh, of storytelling itself, kind of contribute to the tragic action the play portrays. Generally, Shakespeare's really interested in the ways by which language frames our experiences, how it in a sense, constructs our lived reality. In a way, I guess, Romeo and Juliet is kind of meta. It's a play about playing roles. So hence the other changes that he makes from the sources. In them, the story takes place at a rather leisurely pace, actually, over the course of a few months. Shakespeare contracts that time frame to a mere four days, which wildly intensifies the passions and leads to questions about the depth and maturity of the character's emotions. And speaking of maturity, Shakespeare dramatically reduces Juliet's age. In the sources, she first appears to be around 20 years old. A later version makes her 16, but Shakespeare explicitly puts her age at just 13. Capulet tells Paris that, quote, My child is yet a stranger in the world. She hath not seen the change of fourteen years. Let two more summers wither in their pride, ere we may think her ripe to be a bride. So Dad wants her to be sixteen before any marriages take place, well aware, it seems, of his daughter's juvenescence and fervent emotional nature. Interestingly, Paris accepts the premise, but argues, quote, Younger than she are happy mothers made. Also a little creepy. But Capulet replies, quote, And too soon marred are those so early made. Hmm. So note the repetition as rhyme here to conclude the point, as well as the heavy stress on the word marred as a physically and linguistically diminished version of married all those alliterative M's tying the conversation up. And since we've mentioned young Paris, and many of us, I suppose, are want to think of him as the, he's the rom-com interloper, isn't he? He's the, he's the other guy that our heroine nearly settles for. 
I think it's worth noting, though, that Shakespeare has Paris actually come to Juliet's tomb at the end. Now, this does not occur in the sources, and so I think that maybe we're a little harsh on Mr. Paris, creepy though he may be in the aforementioned scene. I read his visit to the tomb as a gesture of genuine feeling for Juliet, a real sign of mourning. She she says dying thought, quote, Oh, I am slain. If thou be merciful, open the tomb, lay me with Juliet. I'm in danger of drifting again. I was talking of Juliet's rather startling youth. It's often explained away in junior high classrooms as, well, that's just the way it was in those days. And I suppose a well-informed language arts teacher might remember that Chaucer's wife of Bath declares, quote, For Lordingers, sith I twelve a year was of age, thonked be God that is eternal lever, whose bondes a cercador have I a fever. Married at twelve. But Chaucer and Shakespeare feel the need to mention their ages, not because it was common, but because it was extraordinary. These are excessively young girls. Certainly not without historical precedent, but not in the usual way of doing things. Juliet's youth is emphasized because it's a problem. While canon law fixed a girl's betrothal age at 12 and a boy's at 14, overwhelmingly in the Middle Ages and early modern period, the average age of brides was 18 to 22. Yes, noble families might contract and execute marriages earlier for sundry political and monetary reasons, but we should not take Juliet's youth as unsurprising. Well, then how old is Romeo? Curiously, Shakespeare leaves that rather vague. We get the impression that he is some years older than Juliet, but we're not sure how many. Generally, he's portrayed as being perhaps 16, but as we've already noted, he could be in his early 20s. There's no reason to not imagine a perhaps eight-year age gap between a child and a young man. And whatever his age, even though he's physically mature, He's not emotionally or mentally mature yet. The play opens with the famous prologue, and while it provides necessary exposition and a deterministic cast to events which follow, the literary form the speech takes will echo throughout Romeo's characterization. You remember it, yeah? Two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona, where we lay our scene, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But that prologue is a sonnet. Remember them? Sonnets, 14 lines of iambic pentameter, quatrains and couplets, or octaves and sestets, rather fashionable among swank gentlemen of the time. Shakespeare opens this play with the au-courant love-poem style. And the sonnet occurs a couple more times in the play, the last being a prologue to Act Two. But the first time the lovers kiss, their dialogue is a sonnet. Here it is. Romeo takes the first quatrain. If I profane with my unworthiest hand this holy shrine, the gentle sin is this. My lips, two blushing pilgrims, ready stand to smooth that rough touch with a tender kiss. 
Juliet takes the second quatrain. Good pilgrim, you do wrong your hand too much, which mannerly devotion shows in this. For saints have hands that pilgrims' hands do touch, and palm to palm is holy palmer's kiss. Then they share the third, Romeo. Have not saints' lips and holy palmer's too? Juliet. I pilgrim lips that they must use in prayer. Romeo. Oh, then, dear saint, let lips do what hands do. They pray, grant thou, lest faith turn to despair. And then the final couplet alternates. Juliet. Saints do not move, though grant for prayer's sake. Romeo. Then move not, while my prayer's effect I take. And then he kisses her. Now, this is rather unusual. We're used to Renaissance sonnet cycles. We've looked at those by Sidney and by Spencer, uh, the ones that are inspired by Petrarch, you know, in which the woman is an unattainable ideal. Remember in Sidney's Astrophil and Stella, Stella means star, bright and shiny, above and beyond, and silent, right? The woman is in those cycles, is usually silent. Hardly ever is she given a voice. But here, in Romeo and Juliet, this sonnet is dialogical. There's statement and response. Now, there's a couple of things we can draw from this. Number one, Romeo is the card and calendar of the Petrarchan sonnet lover. He mopes about melancholically, mooning over his love. He prefers solitude. His language is often paradoxical. He presents himself as an erotic, courtly love-style suitor, trying to dazzle with witty metaphors. But in Romeo's case, they come off as quite conventional, almost moribund. She is a shrine. He, or his lips, are pilgrims. Yawn. By the by, looked at this way, his famous, but soft, what light through yonder window breaks. It is the east and Juliet is the sun, from the famous balcony scene. That comes off as completely derivative and dull, right? It feels like a cliche even 425 years ago. Uh, She should have ghosted him right there. Yeah, and, and speaking of ghosting, whatever happened to Rosaline? She seemed a perfectly nice person, not a party girl, but Romeo says, quote, She hath forsworn to love, and in that vow do I live dead that live to tell it now. She doesn't return his passion, and, and even if she did, she has chosen to remain chaste. She's hardly a suitable subject for an aspiring young cavalier. What's a young red-blooded Veronese to do? Hey, who's that pretty kid? Pretty kid, though, is a bit more sharp. Juliet plays the worldly-wise woman a bit, like the beloved in Spencer's Amoretti who challenges his vanity, one of those rare occasions when the woman speaks back. And Juliet reminds Romeo of the actual holiness implied by his clumsy pilgrimage metaphor. Yeah, I get it. This is the weakest, hard-to-get ploy ever. She ain't straining herself. But she is calling out, albeit delicately, Romeo's callowness. He's playing a role, and she knows it. He's a young man with his head addled by all that poetry, 
and he acts the part of the poetic lover. She up on that famous balcony and he down in the orchard, you know, itself a rather well-worn trope for sexual delight in medieval courtly love poetry. That's a brilliant instantiation of the world of Romeo's youthful fantasy. If you've not noticed, I am, uh, I'm not a member of the Romeo fan club. The other thing we can take is that the dialogic sonnet allows for Juliet's agency a little bit and a foregrounding of female desire. When you think about it, the beloveds of the sonnet sequences, they're, they're kind of sexless, aren't they? They, they inspire some kind of intellectual or spiritual passion in the speaker, but actual desire feels almost absent, or at least quite buried in the poetic performance. And since the women addressed by these cycles are generally mute, we've no reckoning with female sexuality at all. But Shakespeare centers Juliet's sexual desire at the same time as, maybe disturbingly, centering her youth. It's no mistake that he alters her age to coincide with the dawning sexual awareness of adolescence. Anticipating her wedding night, Juliet longs for Romeo. Quote, Come, gentle knight, come, loving black-browed knight, give me my Romeo, and when I shall die, take him and cut him out in little stars. It's kind of a beautiful line, but early editors thought that they must have gotten hold of a bad text because it seems more sensible that Romeo should be dead if he is to be cut out in little stars, right? Until you realize that die was also a slang term back in the day for orgasm. Now then the line reads more clearly and is far more erotically charged. The imperative come needs no real explanation for its sexual subtext, and the word night does similar double duty as a homonym for, for the dark hours and for the chivalrous lover, yeah? And of course, we should note that Juliet sees herself here as the active party. She doesn't say, take me, my love, as one might more conventionally expect. She says, give me. She'll do the taking herself. That's rather a precocious young lady but one still hopelessly green. Clever she is, educated, savvy to the ways of her rather constricted world, but still very innocent and, in her way, as romantically addled as Romeo. That's the tragedy, I think. Not what happens to the lovers, but why it happens. Their thrusting youth and emotional rebellion are energized by a fantasy, a game of what if. And that's what the Wherefore Art Thou Romeo speech is about. That business about a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. They live in a world entirely circumscribed by the name, Montague or Capulet. And remember that these are paternal names traced through the male line. This was what identity was in the early modern period a matter of lineage and social position. Not yet did we have our modern notions of identity as a matter of autonomous consciousness and individuality. So Juliet is similarly precocious in her anticipating a 
post-romanticist conception of the self, an authentic and unique agent, unhindered and uncircumscribed by politics or society or biology or, or any other external force, the opening prologue emphasizes the ideas of household and dignity, and such defining social and masculine forces cannot be overwrought by a sonity dream, at least not yet. But conversely, to dismiss the tragedy as merely patriarchal tyranny is to miss a point. Certainly the kind of paternalism under which the play operates comes in for some intense scrutiny. The feuding families, the rioting young men, and rioting itself as a means of male bonding, uh, the misogynistic threatening language. Remember, Samson, one of Capulet's men, says that he will, quote, thrust Montague's maids to the wall. The clear subordination of women's agency in general, all this is presented for our critique. And sadly, the sonneteer is, as personified by Romeo, not a hero defying a dangerous cultural order, but in fact a reification of that very system's more seductive faces. It's something of a critical commonplace to note that Romeo and Juliet is a comedy until people start dying. But there's some truth to it. It's Shakespeare's first real foray into tragedy, and he draws on many comedic formulae. Many scholars go so far as to say that Romeo and Juliet is a Midsummer Night's Dream through the funhouse mirror. The two plays do share so much, the father-enforced marriage. Lysander and Romeo are a pair, just as Hermia and Juliet are. Much of the verse shares similar characteristics. We get a lot of rhyme swapping and repetition, parallel speeches, stuff like that. The dreams Pyramus and Thisbe play within a play may well be a parody of Romeo and Juliet. Now, we don't know which one Will wrote first, though reasonable dates of 1595 or 6 work. How one play inflected the other chronologically is thus a mystery. But that thing I talked about last episode, that in the dream Shakespeare rather ambiguously restores order even as he preserves the tensions, you know, masculine, feminine, reason, magic, male, female, love, power, even as he keeps those tensions that upset order, uh, I think Romeo and Juliet wants to do a similar thing, but then Mercutio dies. And this is what clever clogs call peripatia. It's the turning point in a tragedy when the the horrifying end becomes all but inevitable. Peripatia, the turn. Let's look at that prologue sonnet again. Here's another pair of wicked famous lines telling us of how the feud between the two noble households, alike in dignity, will be resolved by the sacrifice of their children. Quote, From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life maybe so famous that we don't notice them anymore. Right? The star-crossed lovers bit especially. Now, 
Yes, this line taken in isolation means something like betrayed by the stars or ill-fated. You know, it's an astrology thing. But the play keeps the tragedy squarely centered in human folly or venality, emotional rashness. The star bit reminds me of the unattainable female of the sonnet cycles, in which case the play's destruction comes not from disembodied destiny, but from a romantic misprision. The first of those two lines, dominated by the F alliteration, plays with the dual meanings of fatal. Fatal can mean both deadly and destined. The loins of the two foes literally means the line of family descendancy, right? Generations of Montagues and Capulets. But if you are prone to playing with words, uh, as I am, you could also make an argument that it is the two foes who have metaphorically copulated and produced the tragedy to come. And, of course, the phrase take their life is cruelly equivocal. It can mean receive their life, as in be given birth to, right, the line of descendancy, or it can mean end their own lives, which, of course, they do. Masculine honor and its fragility set in motion a chain of events that Romeo is too emotionally shallow to control. or or even effectively respond to, events which cost not only his life, but the life of Juliet. So let's look at Romeo's last lines. Quote, Eyes, look your last. Arms, take your last embrace. And lips, O you the doors of breath, seal with a righteous kiss a dateless bargain to engrossing death. Come, bitter conduct, come, unsavory guide. Thou desperate pilot, now at once run on the dashing rocks, thy seasick, weary bark. Here's to my love. O true apothecary, thy drugs are quick. Thus with a kiss I die. See, he's still the Petrarchan lover. There's almost a meta moment here in which their deaths are just part of a script that Romeo acts out. His final speech says nothing about Juliet or about his recognition, what those clever clogs call anagnoresis, his recognition of his own responsibility for the tragic action. It's all about him, that speech. It's an apostrophe to his own body parts and his fate or his character determining his fate. Righteous kiss my eye. And here's to my love. Surely his love means Juliet, his beloved, his darling. Eh, Maybe. I doubt it. He's not Paris. I think he's talking about his love, his emotional intensity. Juliet just happens to be a hook upon which to hang that hat. I hope you enjoyed this episode, guys. Got a couple of extra pennies that you need to find a home for? Please click the support the show button. Buy me a coffee and a donut. I'd really, really appreciate it. I look forward to talking to you next time. Till then, be good. Be good.